following teaching is from the Warrior's Heart Bible Study for Men. You can find us on the web at warriorsheart.org. We hope you have a great day. Yeah, just to follow up on where it came from was, uh, and I mentioned this before, working with an unreached people group with the Buddhist animistic background. And when we had our first believer, it was really great. We're working through discipleship. We had actually a very dramatic, miraculous encounter happen in terms of a healing. Um, and it really seemed like we were seeing some significant momentum going forward. And then a couple years after the healing, this other thing happened that was unusually bizarre and tragic. And in that, the daughter of the first believer died um, really, really terribly. And then there was a question in regard to, where's your Jesus now? And we saw the wisdom of what you were saying. We saw the power of what you're saying. But now we have experiences that she dies like everyone else and not even like everyone else, in some sense even worse than others did. How do you explain that? And one of the problems that I found is that as Christians... Because we believe that the Word of God is inspired and true and everything that it says is true, we think it says uh, everything that is true. Those are different things. Everything that it says is true, but it doesn't say everything that's true. Matter of fact, that's the conclusion of the Gospel of John. If just writing the things that Jesus said and done were to be done, the world could not contain all the books that would be filled. So... The set of knowledge, of truth, of factual, important, significant stuff is far, far greater than what's revealed in Scripture. What's revealed in Scripture is everything we need for life and godliness. Scripture tells us what we need in order to live faithfully. Now, in the process, we run into some problems like what I just described. How many of you guys have had problems like that of you're faithful, things are going well, and then financial issues, relationship issues, health issues, um, car accidents, tragedies, and suddenly there's this awkward tension of do I try to explain it? Do I just grieve? God, where are you? All of us at some level have done it and we either explain it away or suppress it or we have enough maturity to deal with it. When we deal with it, we end up being empowered to actually understand and live what Jesus calls us to, which is take up your cross daily and follow me. And one of the goals I want us to have is to be able to understand how important this is and what it means and how it's related to the mystery of suffering. So I'm going to give you a five-minute video clip. I'm actually taking one out of an 11-minute. And it's the book of Job. And in the book of Job, um, it's got some really interesting facets to it, including God and Satan being in the same place. We say certain truisms that aren't actually true about um, how Satan functions and where he's at and what he does. Uh, But nonetheless, in there, there's this question about what does it mean to truly follow you? If following you is simply a cause and effect of you as God give good to people, and as a result, people give goodness and worship back to you, 
what would happen if you removed the short-term benefits? And God said, well, let's find out. And so in Job's life, the short-term benefits of his fidelity to God are removed. And he loses money, he loses his kids, he loses his health. And he goes through this struggle of trying to understand it, and he has these friends who come to him who quote truths about God. And they want to debate with him, and they want to explain away his emotions and his thoughts and say to him that your struggle in in asking God, why has this happened to me, is inappropriate. And instead, you just just realize if you're suffering, it's because you did something wrong, and you deserve it. That's the only explanation for suffering. Somewhere, somehow, you're guilty. The debate goes on, and it builds. And in chapter 38, God shows up, and he addresses this question for Job, but he also does it for us. So let's listen as we hear a quick synopsis of the conclusion of Job.
But so we come back to the big question of Job's suffering. Why is there suffering in God's world? Whether it's from earthquakes or wild animals or from other humans, God doesn't explain why. What he says is that we live in an extremely complex, amazing world that at this stage, at least, is not designed to prevent suffering. And that's God's response. Job challenged God's justice. God responds that Job doesn't have sufficient knowledge about our universe to make such a claim. Job demanded a full explanation from God. And what God asked Job for is trust in his wisdom and character. And so, Job responds with humility and repentance. He apologizes for accusing God, and he acknowledges that he's overstepped his bounds. Then all of a sudden, the book concludes with a short epilogue. First, God says that the friends were wrong that their ideas about God's justice were just too simple, not true to the complexity of the world or God's wisdom. And then God says that Job has spoken rightly about this. Now this is surprising, because it can't apply to everything Job says. I mean, we know Job drew hasty and wrong conclusions, but God still approves of Job's wrestling, how Job came honestly before God with all of his emotion and pain and simply wanted to talk to God himself. And God says, that's the right way to process through all of this, through the struggle of prayer. The book concludes with Job having his health, his family, his wealth, all restored. Not as a reward for good behavior, but simply as a generous gift from God, and that's the end of the book. So the book of Job, it doesn't unlock the puzzle of why bad things happen to good people. Rather, it does invite us to trust God's wisdom when we do encounter suffering, rather than try and figure out the reason for it. When we search for reasons, tend to either simplify God, like the friends, or like Job, accuse God, but based on limited evidence. And so the book is inviting us to honestly bring our pain and our grief to God, and to trust that God actually cares, and that he knows what he's doing. And that's what the book of Job is all about. Alright, here's your challenge. Either on the sheet that's sort of got uh, how to draw it in short explanations, column one, two, three, four, five. Or on the other hand, out that's a little cleaner. What you need to do at your uh, table, if you would, is try to explain how to use the symbols in Crown Heart World to take this idea of trusting God in hardship and difficulty, even when we don't have all the questions answered that we wish we did. How do we deal with the complexity of God is good, life is hard? And see if you can use Crown Heart World, the, the drawing, to explain this idea that life is hard, God is good. And we'll take about four minutes on that, and then we'll bring back together. All right, here's a question for you. When you see a cross, just a simple cross, a vertical and a horizontal, how significant is that for you as a Christian? Just, you see a simple cross. Does it matter? If you tried to explain all the significance of that, how long would it take you? You just go and go and go. Part of what this is designed for is that when you take complex and emotional ideas and you begin to attach them to a symbol, one, it keeps you from losing all that stuff. It starts to find a place to rest so that in discussion 
you can go back to things that you said that were long and difficult and emotional and refer to them concisely. Yep. Picture's worth a thousand words. Um, and, and the thing is, symbols don't mean anything until you give them meaning. Right? And so you say, peace, pause, to, what do you know, what does this mean? You know, it can mean all sorts of stuff. And, you know, people taking pictures and stuff, and then your British friends say it and say, what are you upset about? Because you got it going the right. So symbols don't mean anything until you give them meaning. But once you give them meaning, they become extremely useful for taking something big and messy and then putting it in relationship to something else that's big and messy. And many of our problems is we can't hold more than one complex idea in our mind at a time. And so we'll move and talk about mercy and then we'll move and talk about justice. <clears throat> but what does Micah 6, 8 say? We need to bring them together. Justice and mercy and humility. And that's the tension that we have. And so I gave the illustration over here at this table. I was teaching a class um, at a university in the Old Testament. And one of the students sitting up close, a young lady um, dressed uh, kind of with a surly attitude, had a tattoo, said, I don't need a savior. Caught my attention. <laughs> so in getting to hear her story and, and getting everyone, so why are you in this class? And it's a requirement was basically the answer for most of them. And what do you expect and so on? I found out that um, she grew up in church. Her mom was the best Christian she ever knew. Always attended church, always served, always prayed, always read her Bible. And when this girl was 16, her mother was murdered. So, God is good all the time, all the time. God is good. But what about my mom? What do you say? And you guys come up with other examples that you know personally and you get pinched in saying, do I just run away from the conversation or do I engage it? And if I engage it, do I become like Job's friends? And I start diagramming and explaining, here's why your mom died. Hopefully not. Hopefully in humility, we can do two things. We can be faithful to God and the truths of who he is and what he's done. And we can be meaningful and accessible and compassionate to people we're connecting with. And that's our challenge in evangelism. That's our challenge in discipleship. That's our just challenge in everything. Either in our effort of being faithful to God, we're unable to connect meaningfully to people who don't already agree with us, which means all of our friends are Christians and all of our meaningful activities are church-related activities. And when we try to connect with people who aren't Christians, it doesn't go well, and we just put it off on them. Or we want to be liked so much that we end up compromising our convictions just to fit in with people. Does everyone feel this tension that I want to do both, and I don't know how to do both simultaneously? Catch the ball and keep your feet in bounds, right? It, it, it's hard. What this is meant to do then 
is take us in column two, this question of the pain and suffering that we feel and this question of where is God to see how column three, the gospel of who Jesus is, what he did, and what that means for us brings us to column four. And in column four, as we talked about last week, our hearts get turned upside right when we trust in Christ. We find peace. We're no longer panicked and upside down like in column two. That we've been stabilized, that we've received love. And the love that we've received is really, really um, interesting. How did we receive God's love? What did we have to do to earn it? We don't earn it. In Romans 5, there's the question of who would give their life for another person. Maybe occasionally someone might give their life for a noble person, but when did uh, Christ give his life for us? How did God demonstrate his love for us? While we were totally jacked up, evil, unloving, undeserving, we did not deserve it. And somehow Jesus was able to maintain his integrity in regard to faithfulness to the Father and simultaneously engage unworthy people with love. What did he have to do in order to do that? Column three. Jesus comes in. He lives a life of love. Micah 6, 8, love. Justice, he stands up to religious bullies. Mercy, he finds someone caught in adultery and offers compassion and says you were made for more than this and you should be forgiven and restored and be able to live the life that you were called to live. So he gets it right, justice and mercy. What's the middle of column three? What's the world's response Israel's response as well as Rome's response to Jesus in his way of reconciling love. We'll kill you, man. You threaten us politically. You threaten us religiously. All the control mechanisms that we have in place, you're undermining it because you're not playing by the rules. And our rules are the column two rules, which is we live in a world of domination and you exercise dominion politically or you exercise dominion religiously, but you dominate. And in Isaiah 53, we're familiar with it because it talks about Jesus taking on our sins, but it begins, actually, it's five stanzas, the end of 52, and then four stanzas in 53. It's a song, and it starts with, the kings of the earth will shut their mouths at him because they will be stunned that he doesn't do things the way that we do things. Instead of dominating and coming in on a stallion and conquering, how does he come in? On a donkey in humility. What's it get him? How'd it go for him? Very well that day. It was a big party. But when he got put to the test, what happened? Yeah, and Mel Gibson did everyone a favor and helped you viscerally experience through his film, The Passion. And you're like, dang, that's hard to watch. It's not funny. It's not fun. It's disturbing. I I don't know if I can keep looking or if I can look away. So through pain and suffering, sacrificial love, he ends up making it possible for us to be here and be changed. And we all, when we see the cross... 
What we think about is his sacrificial love for us. Who are we supposed to be like? Like Jesus. We started this with 1 John 2, 6. Uh, 1 John 1, 9 says, We confess our sins, he's faithful and just, forgives our sins, and cleanses from all unrighteousness. But then it goes on to say, Anyone who claims to have faith in God in Christ should do what? Live the way he lived. How did he live? Faithful and courageous. Justice and mercy. Loving people who didn't deserve to be loved. So what does it mean to follow Christ? Take up your cross and follow him? What's it going to cost you to have the character of Christ? Everything. Ultimately, suffering. That you are going to have to receive suffering from people you're trying to be loving to that instead of giving you love back, give you violence, hate, and contempt, and dishonesty. And until we learn what that means to love people who are not for us, we are not mature in Christ. Turn, if you will, to Matthew 5. Uh, It's the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus says, we're not crazy to want to be nice to people who are nice to us. He says, you can do that in column two. That's just the way the world is. So pick that up in, um, let's see, 538. You've heard it said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But Jesus says that's not his teaching. Do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Jesus says this, but come on, Jesus, what if it really comes down to it? Would you turn the other cheek? Did he? How do we know? How do we know that it's okay to have a beard, by the way? (laughs) Jesus had a beard. How do we know he had a beard? Because all the pictures show him with the beard. And a long hair, too. We know he had a beard because it talks about his beard being ripped out. When he was being beat and humiliated and tortured by the Romans. Because that's what you do to your enemies. If someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let them have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you. Don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You've heard it said, love your neighbor and... It's all right. Just go ahead. Hit your enemy. But, Jesus says, I actually tell you something different than differentiating between loving people who deserve it and not loving those who don't deserve it. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be your father's sons, the sons of your father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the corrupt government officials doing that, the tax collectors? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Don't even the pagans do that? And then he uses this word that we've talked about before, be perfect, complete, mature, teleios, 
therefore, as your father is complete, mature. And he goes on to explain how to do that and what follows. By faith, we receive the experience of sacrificial love that's unmerited, undeserved. By grace, we then grow up in that identity to where what we've received, we increasingly have the power to give. That's exactly the argument in 2 Peter chapter 1. He says that you love him, and now you need to add to your faith, and there's this long sequence of things that you add. What's the final thing that's added? Turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. You start with your faith, which is, I believe, Jesus died for my sins, even though I totally didn't deserve it, even though I was an enemy of God, dead in my sins and trespasses. He loved me before I was lovable. And we're all very, very comfortable in saying that degree of testimony. So in verse 5, for this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, which is where you get the word like for Philadelphia, phileo, and to brotherly kindness, agape. And so he talks about getting to a point of love where you're just basically a decent person, and then finally getting to the kind of love that's the kind of love that Jesus demonstrated was this, this crazy sacrificial love that you actually love your enemies. Who's an enemy that Jesus loved as he was being tortured? On the cross. He showed love toward the thieves. Who else? The torturers. The professional torturers. It's their job. They were good at it. They had no compassion or mercy. And yet, as he's suffering from them, he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And when I point to column two, the imagery that helps me there is these are men whose hearts are turned upside down And they live in a world that's always bullied and oppressed them. And if you've been bullied and oppressed, you finally figure out, I just need to be a bigger bully than the people that are bullying me, and then I won't be oppressed anymore. And then I can be like Rome. And then they get jobs as Roman centurions and become professional, merciless torturers. And Jesus has compassion on them. Because he says, look at the top of column two. They do not understand the meaning of life. They do not understand their identity. They do not understand God. They do not know what they're doing. So, the story carries forward. Look at the top of uh, this simpler sheet. Those five columns, we can say in really short ways, column one tells us what? Yeah, and his simple good is, Good God made a good world and made it in his image to honor him, enjoy each other, and enjoy his creation, helping it to flourish. But what does column two tell us? Yes. And that's when we experience things in our life that are wrong or temptations that we have to act out. It's this challenge of saying, 
I live in a world that's not good anymore, and this is just the way life works. The story of Jesus, column three, good overcomes bad. Up until then, we just think it's bad versus bad, and who's the baddest? And when you read Daniel, it's all about this monster, that monster, which beast is going to dominate which beast, and then you even end up with the Babylonians, Iraq, getting dominated by the Persians, Iran, and then both of these great lords are taught that there's a king of kings and lord of lords that are above you, and both of them, Darius and Nebuchadnezzar, end up declaring this to the edge of their empire, that they realize our beastly ways are never going to match the Son of Man. And so we see this hinted at, and then ultimately in column three in the life of Jesus through the resurrection, we see that good overcomes evil. And so our tendency to good overcomes evil gets validated. Here's chapter four, or column four for us. This is our mandate. This is our job. Good overcoming bad. How many of you guys feel the struggle of that in your own life and habits? The way you think, the way you react. You know, I joke about Pringles and traffic. Because it's a whole lot less awkward than sexuality or substance abuse or all kinds of other weird stuff. But we all get it. We have impulses that lead us to go contrary to our values. Internally. Even in our families, in our churches, we have struggles of what ought to be and what isn't, of being hurt and hurting others, and we want to live at peace, and even that's hard. The more we extend it to the broader world, the more difficult it becomes. But our goal is that receiving this grace, we become transformed, we transform others, and we do it in Christ through Christ. So, getting back to the Job question, how do you use column four to express a mature Christian response to pain and suffering? What symbols in there help us? The heart is, I don't know everything, but I know that in Christ I'm forgiven and I have position in him and I'm going to be okay. That's good. What else? All right, so the faith arrow, the arrow that points back from the heart, that's what we do when we come, like this morning, as we study the Bible, to see God's faithfulness throughout history. And so, let me just put this up. And so, um, another good passage to help draw this out is 1 Corinthians 13. Went to a wedding recently, and I always love 1 Corinthians 13 where it's described what love is and so on. Um, And part of the faith is that it talks about is verse 8 of 1 Corinthians 13. Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they're going to come to an end. Where there are tongues, languages, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. In verse 9, how does this relate to the crown in the cloud? Someone read verse 9 for us. All right, that's what the crown in the cloud is. 
we know in part, we do not know completely. Job, the whole book is dedicated to that. The book of Habakkuk is dedicated to that. It shows up, Old Testament, New Testament shows up in Revelation as well. Uh, The martyrs under the throne are still in the presence of God, and they're saying, God, how long before you bring justice to an unjust world? And we appreciate your patience and mercy towards us, but we're losing patience and mercy with other bad people. And we struggle to understand this. By using this symbol, what we're showing is we own the fact that two things are true simultaneously. My faith and trust in God is meaningfully informed. I know true stuff about God revealed in Christ, brought to bear by the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. But I also, through the scriptures and experience, know that I only know in part, and there's a lot of stuff I just don't know. How you guys feel about that? Huh? And, and that's interesting. That's good. That's, that's different tendencies. Some we're very comfortable with. Others, because of responsibility, I wish I could explain everything. I wish I could explain to that young lady, and she'd be like, oh, now I understand. Were you going to say something about that as well, about the tension? And here's something that I've learned to say better, uh, because at times I'm being the bad guy to try and bring an alternative view in. And sometimes the reason we want to know everything is out of control and arrogance. And so that's what I trash people on and saying, we just need to come off our high horse and and we don't be Job's friends explaining stuff we don't have any reason to explain. But the other reason that we're compelled to explain stuff is to be responsible. And if God's word reveals stuff and there's truth that can be known, even if it's hard truth, I want to man up and learn stuff and explain stuff and help people out and to say, well, actually, God does talk about there are consequences or God, you know, and I want to explain. And so we feel this push-pull, and it's not always a bad thing to feel an anxiety and to want to give comfort and to say, I wish I could move away the cloudiness and see with clarity and give that clarity to someone else to explain exactly what's wrong and exactly what to go for. Finally, you look in column five, and we see God's mature good. This is where we use the word completion, or again, the Greek word teleios, achieving its goal. Have I given you all the Baker story yet? Y'all ready? Column one, two, three, four, five. Check me on this. I mean, like, you're a baker, right? All right. We're going to do, like, fluffy good bread, croissant, kind of like... Fluff it up. Now, if y'all ever remember, like, old school, those really thick, heavy ceramic bowls that bread would be made in? I hadn't seen those in forever. But I remember my mom having those. And you start off, and you got some oil, and you got some flour, and you go to column one, and you got the bakers putting these good ingredients together, and you've got dough and a little salt and a little this and that. And you can take a pinch out of it. It's no big deal. Until what happens? You put the yeast. And what's yeast, basically? It's like bacteria. It's like stuff to make you sick. It's like critters growing. 
So you put yeast in it, and we come to column two. The good has now been defiled with something that, hey, mom, can I take a pinch out of that? It's like, no, it'll make you sick. And then she takes it, and she does this crazy thing. She mixes this bad, dangerous stuff in it, and she puts it where? In the bowl. And then what does she do with the bowl? She covers this damp cloth and then puts it to where it can feel the heat, but it doesn't see the light. And it, what happens to the thing is it gets really nasty, funky. And the evil yeast begins to take over and expand. And it gets nastier and nastier. And it's like all this good dough is now rotten and filled with these caverns of evil. And it's like, what have you done? You've ruined goodness and you've brought darkness and death into this original goodness. But then what finally happens? She takes off the cloth, takes the bread, shapes it, and after shaping it, sticks it in the fire, and in the fire comes this judgment on the yeast. And the yeast is killed, and as she pulls out the loaf of bread, bless the baker, she knows what she's doing. And so in column one, the goodness... In column two, you have the yeast of sin that's brought in and the devastation and this long, dark struggle, column two, three, and four, that we're still in. And we have glimmers that there's going to come a day where evil will be removed and even things that seem to be irredeemable actually shape the goodness so that the bread in column five is better than the dough in column one. That it starts with a couple in a garden and it ends with a multitude in a garden city. They were told that you were supposed to honor and represent God over creation and make it flourish. And that's exactly what's happened in column five. God is moving us towards there. One last thing and then we'll process this. What's James 1 tell us about this struggle of column four when we're not to the baked bread yet? What do we do when we face various trials and temptations? Why do we count it all joy? Because we're sadists and weirdos who like pain. It's like you go into the gym, you read the poster, no pain, no gain. You just grab a weight, stick your foot out there, drop the weight. (laughs) That's weird. (laughs) It won't help. Count it all joy when you face various trials and tribulations, not because pain is good or suffering is good. That's just sick. What's the goodness that you get in James 1? The patience that does what? The, let's look at it real quick. The what? We find the same Greek word showing up again that Jesus talked about was the point of putting up with evil people with love when they don't deserve it. Perseverance must finish or telos. Again, complete its work so that you may be mature and complete, telos, not lacking in anything. When we respond to suffering with God is good and he will be ultimate justice on evil, and my job is to be faithful to him and love like Christ did. In other words, take up my cross and love those who drive me crazy. Take up my cross and bear the suffering and the shame of those who are against me. 
and want me to become like them, angry and conflicted, and the one who slaps me, the one who sues me, the one who does this, I do not give them the power to change my mandate. My king told me that I'm going to love and I'm going to love sacrificially, and nobody out there has the power to turn me into an angry, retribution-oriented person. That's what he's talking about in maturity. And if we take that suffering and we think about what we do know and we're patient about what we don't know, then it matures us patiently towards Christ. That's our lesson. So at your table, how does God in Christ overcome the bad in us and how do we in Christ overcome the bad in others? That's kind of your question. And so take a minute to process that, what makes sense, what you're not so sure about, and we'll just gather up here in about six minutes with a final word and a prayer. If you have any questions, let me know. One of the things that encouraged me that I ever heard is that's when we come to church, celebrate our identity, learn how to trust God faithfully, celebrate that one day everything is going to be okay, regather our courage to go out and love sacrificially. A couple of qualifiers, when Jesus was slapped by uh, the attendant by the high priest, he challenged him. What did I say that's not true? Otherwise, why did you slap me? doesn't mean that you don't push back against evil. It's that when you push back against evil, you do it with redemptive purposes in mind. And so the same thing. When Paul, trying to kill the church, becomes a Christian, the church has to decide. Do we resent him, hate him, and still want to kill him? Or do we want to reconcile and bring him in? Or when Paul gets put in prison in uh, Acts 16, and then he's able to be released... Uh, he says, I'm not leaving here until the authorities come and apologize because what they did is wrong. And so standing up for law, standing up for what's right fits within this. It's not a question of trying to become a victim. It's a question of in your pursuit of justice is your ultimate goal reconciliation and rehabilitation or is it vengeance and destruction? The way of Christ is strong but merciful. And that's what our hope, and that's what it means to follow him, and that's why we gather together, because it's not always clear, and we have a lot of wisdom from one another, and we challenge each other say, that's good, but you also need to think about this. And so that's why we gather. Next week, we'll talk about how to use this in discipleship and in evangelism. So thank you. Thank you, Russell. Let's thank him. This is very counter to everything I feel like if you've grown up in America, this is very counter to all of that. And so I just want to encourage you, don't give up on asking God to show you, teach you. Like the more we spend time in this, I think it will begin to change how we actually engage the world and the people. And I don't use engage in a military term. I just mean interacting with coworkers and family members and everything else. And, and one thing, Russell wasn't saying we don't cry at a funeral at all. Because of this, we can actually grieve with those who are grieving and we can rejoice with those who rejoice. But we also, when the time is appropriate, we can also, in a sense, give a, a, a biblical, loving, truthful statement to someone that maybe is looking for a bigger redemptive purpose in all of that that they just went through. But, but one, one sentence for that. 
I don't know everything about this, but I know someone who does. And my trust is in him. I don't know everything, but I know a guy. Yeah, we, we don't give an answer for God in those ways. God's answer is to join us there. I mean, and he, yeah, I mean, so as a pastor, when you're there with someone that's lost someone is I don't have that answer. I know someone who does, but I also know that God is with us and God loves us. And I believe even this God can redeem. And so, I mean, that, and I don't say that right at the spot, but that, that is our hope in all of it. Um, so I don't know what y'all are going through in life, what problems or trials, economically, job, family, marriage, kids, health, whatever. But we've just cognitively wrestled with this, right? And so I just want to pray over you and over me and over us that we would actually say we're going to apply this right now to say, God, wherever I'm most tempted to have anxiety, wherever I'm most tempted to strike back in retribution, wherever I'm most uncomfortable with the circumstances of my life, I bring this to you and I trust you in this today because you are good and you are with me and you are mighty to save. And so let's, let's pray that to him. Let's, let's bring those areas. Father God, we come before you and we know that you are a God who created and God didn't abandon. You didn't create by mishap. You created intentionally out of authority and power and goodness and beauty and strength. And Lord, that, that we are here today and we, we wrestle through areas of our life that we want to seize control back in. We want to say, it's this is my area, and if, if you don't answer me appropriately, God, I'm going to do what I want to do. We look for justification, Father. And I just say that today we want to place that down. We want to trust in you, that you are good and you are with us and you are mighty to save. And Father, we rejoice and we praise you. But we also say, Father, grow our faith and grow our understanding and grow our capacity to walk with you in this world that isn't perfect right now. It's just not. And we want to be faithful unto you while we walk here. And we are to labor, God, for justice and mercy, loving kindness, God, goodness. So give us the, the courage and the boldness to walk uprightly with you, keeping our eyes fixed on the author and perfecter of our faith. And that in doing so, God, we would be men of faith that would advance your kingdom. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us on this week's podcast. We hope you can join us in person. We meet Thursday mornings at 6.30 a.m. in the Garden Room of Houston's First Baptist Church. For more details and to register, you can visit us on the web at warriorsheart.org. That's warriorsheart.org. Have a great day.